The future of business. Future of business. Future of business. More global and more decentralized. Making sure that enterprises are a lot more responsible. Smart cities. More collaboration. Consumer-driven. Productivity. Environmental and social responsibility. Global. Human-centered. Purposeful. Individualized. Automation. Big data. Climate change. Space exploration. Renewable energy. Information security. Exciting and digital. Hello and welcome to the Future of Business podcast. I'm your host, Alison MacArthur. In this episode, we'll be talking about the rise of impact investing. Our guest today, Orni Power, has been working in the impact investing space since the early days, helping navigate fact from fiction in this fast-growing sector. We caught up with Orni in Oxford to learn more about how investors are using their capital to generate both social and financial returns. So Orni, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast no today. Um, so we'll start with a simple or maybe not so simple question. Um, what is impact investing? I mean, it seems to have been like this hot new chat term that's suddenly sprung up from nowhere. Um, but I mean, is it, is, it, is it something new or is it something that's existed in some form or another for a long time? So it has existed for a long time. So we can actually go back to the 1600s with the Quakers. Um, we're putting money into what we would probably call development finance now. It essentially was, you know, impact and through to all the way, even you can go further back to tithing and, you know, essentially tied often to religious practices around being able to put money into people or projects that have, you know, positive social or community impact. Um, the term, as we call it now, originated in 2007 um, um, in Bellagio um, Resort, which is owned by, not resort, Bellagio Estate, whatever it is, Bellagio something, um, that's owned by um, the Rockefeller Foundation. And um, it was in a meeting of high-level individuals, and so they coined this term, impact investing. And, and what it refers to is investments that have positive social and environmental impact, as well as financial return. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that differentiates impact investors from traditional investors um, is that they have the intention to create impact um, and then they measure that impact. So those two things together um, are what differentiate. All investors have impact, mm-hmm. positive and negative, um, but without that intentionality and without that measurement, um, then you know it's not really impact investing. Mm-hmm. So, are, so is social impact and financial returns in lockstep? with impact investing or can they be in tension? So there's always going to be tension. Um, I think what we found, so what we often say is that impact investing 1.0 kind of, and there were people that were obviously doing impact investing before 2007 and that, and very, it's still, we have impact investors that, you know, have been around for 20 years um, or 30 years in some cases, development financiers that have been doing this for 50 or 60 years. Um, but the kind of 1.0 of impact investing, kind of 2007 to an undetermined date um, a few years ago, really we were very concerned with this idea of a trade-off. So how much social impact can we get for a reduction in how much financial return? Um, and I'm embarrassed to say I wrote pieces on this and, and looked at you know what, what would be the trade-off. And I think where we got to then in kind of impact investing 2.0 and maybe we're even into 3.0 now um, was that it was much more nuanced. So there's this idea of risk, return, and impact. 
and in some ways impact investments can bring things into portfolios that um, offer differentiation, that offer non-correlation um, in kind of traditional financial speak by being able to have access to investments that work with the base of the pyramid, people that are making decisions that aren't necessarily correlated with the market, um, things like affordable housing and education that are inversely correlated with the market. Um, and so creating portfolios, traditional portfolios of any kind, require that type of differentiation and that type of diversity within the portfolio to make it resilient. And so there's you know, a real sense to data coming out that shows that companies can do good while doing well. In fact, the, the data that we're seeing is continually now showing us that companies that are focusing on things like sustainability and innovation and gender parity, gender equality, whatever you want to call it, and treating their workers well are having fewer shocks um, to their um, to their social capital and their financial capital. So, you know, there's there's a variety of studies. I think what I say and you as students have probably heard me say, um, is that impact investing does not make more money than traditional investing. But you can be a really good impact investor and you know have high returns, and you can be a really terrible impact investor and have terrible returns. It's a strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we know, we don't know if it outperforms. We do know that it doesn't inherently underperform. Mm-hmm. So how has it evolved over the past 10 years since the term has been coined? Um, has it grown in popularity? And if so, like, ha- how has that happened? Do you think it's something to do with like an increased consumer and investor kind of need for maybe more transparent supply chain processes, more fair trade goods, um, service, you know, just, you know, people are more aware, I think now about the negative impact that their consumption habits can have on um, other people. And the environment. Absolutely. So it's absolutely grown. So um, the Global Impact Investing Network, um, and originally with JP Morgan, has done a survey every year for the past eight years and has shown about 40% growth, still underreported. This last year was $228 billion. Um, so probably you know somewhere around $350 um, billion this year. Um, that's still tiny. Right, drop in the drop in the bucket, and it's it's underreported. Those are that self-reported numbers um, in in U.S. dollars, um, and and very skewed towards kind of Western funds that identify as impact investors. Um, but the growing sense. So another number there that's quite interesting is actually one in four professionally managed dollars have some sort of SRI or ESG, so environmental social governance screen, um, or you know impact investing, which is a tiny bit. So in general funds on mass are moving towards having some recognition of non-financial um, impact. And I think that there's, there's the groundswell of consumerism that is a piece of it, but there's a real understanding at a corporate and at a financier level that disregarding these other indicators is actually at their own peril. Yeah. So, um, for instance, yesterday, um, Lloyds of London announced that they had another loss, um, and, and that was their second year of losses. Um, and it, the reason was is they had their models do not predict the level of catastrophic, ca- catastrophic events that are happening in the areas that they um, essentially insure. And so, you know, large insurance companies have built massive right some of the biggest companies in the world around financial models that don't work 
because of climate change. Mm -hmm. And so there is an incentive for a whole portion of the market to all of a sudden try and figure out not just how do they reduce their risk, how do they actively change these these situations that are going to no longer be tenable for them. And so, you know, I think there's that's one portion of the financial market. And you see corporates, um, survey after survey shows us that you know, almost all um, CEOs see sustainability as something that is required for them to exist, mm-hmm. as opposed to something that's kind of nice for them to have for their shareholders. Especially in the long term. Exactly. I mean, not that everyone thinks long term. <laughs> so I think we, we've moved really from the shift of like, oh, there's this nice thing. I'm going to do some stuff on the side. I'm going to give some money away. I'm going to build a school. I'm going to do this to realizing that we have huge amounts of capital that are creating negative harm to planet and people, and that cannot be um, changed through small things on the side. That capital and the way in which that is invested and the way in which that incentivizes corporates and companies has to actually fundamentally change. And I think it's this recognition of market failures. Mm-hmm. And the you know, financial crisis 2008 was a great example for us to look and say, we don't know how to price risk. So... Yeah, so I think, I guess, the, the there's a lot of scepticism at the moment around sort of CSR and yep. companies using, um, you know, sort of greenwashing yep. and marketing as yep. a way to say, oh, we're doing good, and it's not actually integral to their operations. Mm-hmm. So you think this is changing at the moment, and it, and it will change? I do. So $30 yeah. trillion dollars is going to be passed down um, from the baby boomers um, to millennials, um, or to in between that, essentially, to the to next generations. Um, and in every survey from, you know, the Harvard Business Review to McKinsey, Millennials um, think that their investments can have impact, and they think that the company companies themselves should should prioritize um, impact. And so, you know, whereas the need to do CSR, um, which you know is an area that I, I don't really love working in because it's it's not an area that has any accountability within a firm. So you know, it's a small amount it's of money put aside. Yeah. Totally, it doesn't sit mm. within the strategy piece. So you know, that ability to make up with with for all of these kind of bad things that are created with a small amount of money on the side is is increasingly seen as archaic. Yeah. So, you know, you're a company that um, is a, um, a company that's, oh, for instance, it's actually a great example. Um, there was a large um, kind of piece in the New York Times about how these um, traditional fossil fuel families the younger, the children within them are all starting renewables companies and they're not doing it because they, you know, it's out of the goodness of their hearts. They're like, listen, in 30 years, my company's, my family's business is not going to be around. And we've actually hit, there was a report that came out um, last week that said that we've actually in almost all parts of the US and most parts of the world have hit parity to the point where in the next five years, it will be more expensive to produce fossil, most fossil fuel power as opposed to renewables. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about blended financing. So who is involved in that? Who are the investors? Like, How does that work? Sure. So blended finance, or as I call it, innovative finance, which is kind of a bit broader than traditional. So the term blended finance really came out of development finance space. And that was where you took private capital and you took public capital and you put it together. And then the whole was greater than the sum of the parts. Um, And so taking that approach and applying it to instead of just development finance institutions into any institution. So, you know, anyone can be an innovative financier. Banks, impact investors, governments, development finance institutions, corporates, SMEs, social enterprises, foundations, I mean, anyone. And so the real, the trick there is starting with an issue, an issue area, it can be an SDG, you know, hopefully it falls somewhere under one of the SDGs, um, but something that's really important to a community, a set of communities, um, you know, a set of individuals, and then designing 
what type of funding makes the most sense for to to address that issue and you know hopefully a lot of that funding will actually go to support people that are working on the ground you know that know how to address that issue and so the difference between innovative financing and kind of more traditional kind of just pure impact investment into an SME is that if you can create funding structures that allow organizations, individuals, initiatives to address these issues in different ways, so flexible funding structures um, that um, are made up potentially of corporates and a foundation and government support, and there's all different ways you can have guarantees, you can have different types of structures, you can have different types of payment terms, um, but you know, figuring out and saying, listen, farmers in East Africa suffer from not having insurance for their crops. So how do we put together an insurance policy that makes sense? And that's not going to be using the exact same insurance model that works for large-scale farmers um, in other parts of the world. And so innovative financing says, well, how do we innovate around that to create a product that works for the end users, that solves a problem of theirs, potentially pulls in different um, players. So Acre Africa has done this. They've used technology to drastically reduce um, the cost of insurance by using index insurance, um, being able to use satellite imagery to geolocate um, farmers and be able to, to tell if they've had enough rainfall and automatically pay them if they have not. Um, and so by reducing the cost, and then they sold that to seed companies instead of the farmers, so they reduced the cost of distribution. So they've created this you know, financing mechanism that works for the end um, consumer and then also solves a problem and uses different types so they have you know basically some a bunch of different financial partners in that and so saying that there are multiple entities interested in solving problems there's a lot of people that are interested in solving healthcare problems financial inclusion so finding ways in which we can pull them together but create something that works for the end consumer mm-hmm. and continues to be evaluated about how it's working for the end consumer and then you know that end consumer can be an SME it can be an individual it can be a government mm-hmm. um, and that's what's fun and innovative financing is, is huge and it's across all these different sectors and it's a fa- it's a very interesting area to work in and from a retail perspective would I be able to go in and invest in, a, in an impact investment fund? it's a great question <laughs> and the answer is yes um, so <laughs> there is um, so the interestingly um, the country that kind of came from behind out out in the in the front of this is actually the US. So there's um quite a few now. Um, so Wealthify or not Wealthify, um, Wealth Simple, um, Swell. Oh gosh, I actually have a post that I did. I listed all of these. It's on LinkedIn. You can find it on my LinkedIn profile where I went through and did all these different things on retail investing because I get it asked all the time. Those are all robo-advisors that you're able to then create either individuals. So there's something you can do individually. There's a company down in South Africa called Sun Exchange that allows you to buy um, portions of solar panels and then you get a return on the solar panels, um, like little pieces. So you don't have to buy a whole solar panel and it gets installed. Um, so so yes is the answer um, but it's not enough yet um, you can do in the UK there's retail charity bonds that you can buy yeah great so sort of going on from that what are some of like the major uh, challenges and opportunities for the industry at the moment I know there's been a lot of talk about uh, impact measurement mm-hmm. um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about you know 
um, how, what, what, why is it important? Who is it? Who is it for? Um, is it worth the time and the effort? And is it possible to create a standardised set of measurements similar to accounting standards, or do they have to be tailored to each situation? So both. Yeah, is the answer. And yes, it is very difficult. Um, impact measurement is, is a huge um, piece of you know the ability of the industry to go forward. So the thing to remember is that it's important for whether you're an organization or a fund to collect data to understand how your end user um, essentially is evaluating your offering. Um, and so large technology companies, large companies do that every day. They understand how we use things, how we consume. They want to know what we're doing to be able to better tailor their products. And so in a lot of ways, really good impact data should be the same. So are you improving someone's livelihood? Um, because by doing that, that kind of runs back into your impact thesis, whether you're doing financial inclusion or healthcare, or whatever you're doing, you're working with, again, farmers. I keep talking about agriculture because there's a lot of agriculture and impact. but. You know, if what you're setting out to do is improve livelihoods, improve access to healthcare, improve access to finance, um, if you're not doing that, then likely the product or service that you are selling is not useful to your end users. If you're selling a water product and people aren't actually using the water, then they're not going to A, rebuy that product and likely others are not going to buy it. So the trick with impact measurement is setting out collectible objective and subjective data. So there's a couple of um, interesting developments. So here in headquartered out of the UK, initially incubated in Bridges Ventures, um, is a initiative called um, the Impact Management Project, and they've been working on kind of a trying to be somewhat standardized um, way of thinking about impact across a set of dimensions. Um, and they've tried to do that as an industry-wide um, initiative and you know, have really tried to push forward some, some ways of thinking that potentially allow us to compare different um, impact um, investments and investors. Um, another interesting um, organization, and there's plenty, um, is a company that's spinning out of Acumen called Lean Data. Um, it was called Lean Data while it was in, um, in Acumen, also actually headquartered here in the UK. And what they're doing is they're doing surveys, um, cell phone surveys, and they're able to push out and actually collect data from you know thousands, if not millions, of um, in consumers and be able to use that data. And so there's and then I work with on the blockchain and the AI side multiple companies that are that are actually working to collect objective data using IoT, Internet of Things, um, from devices like clean cook stoves, like um, like uh, PV PV panels, so solar panels, solar PV, um, and other things that can be um, monitored in that way. So. I think the shift that's happening, similar to what I said earlier, is that we're seeing the value of this data increase. And so will it be completely standardized? I don't think so. Um, will we have standard ways, hopefully, of collecting it? Yes. Um, and then, you know, hopefully reporting on it. And I, I think we're moving in that direction. It's important to remember that financial markets took hundreds of years to get to the point where IRR, internal rate of return, was a something that was calculated in a standard way. So, you know, we're at an early stage of this. And I think that being able to show the link of that, of those, that data points, those, da those data points um, to whether it's return, growth, sales, et cetera, also drives the willingness of organizations to collect it. 
Um, and so I think that the use of technology is going to be a huge game changer here. Um, and so it will potentially allow us to collect much more objective um, data points and collect them in a way where they are repeatably queryable. So you can ask different questions of the data points and get different answers. Um, and I think that's going to be important. We're still, it's still a tedious process to get there. The SDGs have been exceptionally, exceptionally valuable from a framework perspective. So getting people to at least talk about the same things. Um, so I think it's still, it's still messy and it's um, not even close to standardized. So we still have a ways to go. Sure. Um, so what's your vision for the industry? Where do you hope to see it in 10, 20 years time? So like in a, on a broader scale, we want, or I want, um, impact finance to be finance. So financiers collecting data on gender, on inequality, on you know access to affordable housing and energy being part of how they you know look at um, whether they're looking at investors or at L their LPs looking at the actual funds. Um, but I think where we're going in the next kind of the time period is where we go into the fourth industrial revolution and we're looking at the ways in which technology affects people's lives. Um, and I think it's going to be both a use of private capital for you know, public impact as well as an understanding of the policy implications required to actually support communities. So artificial intelligence is a big piece of this. And so thinking about does artificial intelligence displace um, you know, jobs, particularly in emerging markets where you have 50% unemployment or even you know, parts of Europe where you have 50% unemployment, you know, creating automation and the ability of a few individuals to own that automation. So I think there's a broader conversation happening here around market failures and the, the sense of traditional capitalist markets being able to be, you know, an enabler of you know, mobility within, um, within um, communities and countries. And so I think that this rise of being able to use private capital and different types of blended capital and corporates and all these different players being able to work together towards social outcomes will have larger implications. Uh, that's a great note to end on. Orni, thank you so You're much welcome. for joining us. No, no problem. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a lot of great episodes coming up for this latest season of the Future of Business podcast. So do subscribe on iTunes to make sure you get the latest interviews and analysis from Oxford Said Business School. If you have any comments or suggestions, then do drop us an email at sbspodcasts at ox.ac.uk. We would love to hear from you. We'll be bringing you a new episode in just a couple of weeks time. And until then, goodbye.